Leonard located large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Celine Cousteau first traveled to the Brazilian Amazon when she was a child, and she returned to the area 25 years later, began documenting the plight of the indigenous people who lived there. Her film, Tribes on the Edge, took her to the Valle do Javari, or Javari Valley, on the border with Peru, whose people face a combination of threats, most notably from imported diseases and illegal development. Her film is now available on demand from iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Hulu, and other platforms. And I'm pleased to welcome film director and environmental activist Celine Cousteau to our show now. Hello. Hi. Your father and your grandfather were both famous explorers. How old were you when you went to the Amazon on your grandfather's boat, the Calypso? Uh, the first time I headed to the Amazon, I was nine years old. I, I flew down with my grandfather. Calypso was already in the Amazon on a very long expedition. Um, my grandmother was aboard the ship. My father was off on some raft. My mother was in the jungle um, taking photographs. And... Um, yeah, it was my first introduction to, to the Amazon rainforest. And what were your impressions at that time? <laughs> Obviously, you had a lot of time to, to explore things on your own. <laughs> well, I mean, at nine years old, you, you see the world through a, a child's eyes. Um, so my memories are very much about the senses and the things that I saw. Um, I don't necessarily have huge intellectual um, memories of that time, except these, um, these moments spent with people, with animals. Um, I went out with a scientist uh, who was catching piranha uh, to study them in the aquarium on, uh, aboard the, the boat. And so we went out in a dugout canoe and paddled off to the side. And he was pulling piranha out of the water and putting them at the bottom of the dugout canoe. And I just remember them flopping around as we were paddling them back to the Calypso Um I remember meeting a, a family that was living in the jungle. We had uh, Calypso was sailing along and there was a, a gentleman at the uh, edge of the water who was holding up bananas. And so we stopped and we hopped in the inflatable boat um, to go across and I followed the crew members in. And I remember coming upon the, uh, this clearing where they were living, a very simple home with a wooden floor and a thatched roof, no walls. Um, and there were two kids just playing with sticks and, and whatever they could find. And they seemed to be having so much fun. They were about my age. And I remember that feeling of uh, wondering, how could they be having so much fun with so little? And knowing now, as an adult, looking back, that I had abundance in my home. I had stuffed animals and dolls, and I always had things to occupy myself with, um, and so there was a, really a sense of wonder at seeing all of these things and, and discovering what this jungle was about through its animals and through my experiences. You've been making films for a long time, but isn't this your first documentary feature? Uh, why did you choose this area of the Amazon and specifically the tribes of the Javari Valley to focus on? Um, they chose me. Um, it, it is my first feature film as a director, producer, co-writer. Um, I've worked on quite a lot of different documentaries, but typically as a field producer or a host. Uh, we did a series called Ocean Adventures for PBS with my father and his team at Ocean Future Society. 
Um, I did 12 episodes in Chile for Chilean television um, and, and quite a few others here in France most recently. But this, this was my baby. This was um, a project that has been close to my heart for a long time. I met the people of the uh, Javari territory in 2007 when I was with my father ret um, filming Return to the Amazon for PBS. And I was lucky enough to be able to attend a conference of the different indigenous tribes of the Javari territory. At that time, there were five different contacted tribes um, in many different villages, but they are different ethnicities, different languages, different cultures. And in the days that we were there in 2007, uh, filming this conference, this meeting, they were talking about their health issues. And um, that's when I heard and learned that uh, 50 to 80 percent of the indigenous people of the Javari have some form of hepatitis from A, B, C, and Delta. Um, obviously Imported, right? Is an issue. Imported, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you can look back to the time of um, the uh, European colonizers who went across to South America looking for gold and eventually rubber as well in the 16th century and brought in diseases at that time. And over the course of time, a lot of diseases have come in from outsiders, yeah. Um, now, has COVID also hit the area or is it too cut off? It has. It has. So this area is quite isolated. It's the second largest indigenous territory in Brazil. Um, yet because of where it sits geographically, it's very hard to access. It's right at the tri-border area, Brazil, Peru and Colombia. Um, COVID-19 has um, impacted the area, not as um, uh, majorly as we had uh, feared, but there are a lot of mild to um, moderate cases. There have been some deaths from COVID. Um, illegal activities, unfortunately, have increased as the government staff has decreased in protecting the area which leaves it open um, and vulnerable to the already existing illegal activities. So it's, um, it's quite a scary time. Now, you said that it's one of the largest areas in Brazil. Uh, isn't it roughly the size of Portugal? And there are bigger areas in that? It is. Well, there's only one other indigenous territory um, that, that's been demarcated that's bigger than that. But yes, the Javari is about 85,000 square kilometers, which is the size of Portugal or about the size of Maine in the United States. But uh, it has a fairly small population. There are about 7,000, imagine 7,000 people because we can't count exactly and I'll tell you why. Um, there are six now. When I started filming in 2013, there were five contacted tribes. There are now six contacted tribes. Um, uh, which number about, I'm going to say 5,000 people. They believe another 2,000 um, exist and live in the Javari that are completely uncontacted. You have to remember these indigenous peoples that live there um, were typically nomadic. And so you think that, yes, the area is vast and there are few people, um, but they live in complete harmony and sustainably with that ecosystem, they depend 100% on it. There's no import <laughs> from mm -hmm. other places. So all of the food is local, seasonal and organic. <laughs> um, and their territories were vast because they moved as they were utilizing space. Um, they would then move on and the ecosystem would recuperate. Um, the Now, when you say un when you say uncontacted, they're uncontacted by people from the outside. But what about the other tribes of the area? 
There are uh, there are some unintentional um, uh, we bump into encounters. Each other. Yeah, there are unintentional encounters between the uncontacted and the contacted. There's actually pretty strict government policies as far as um, coming anywhere near uncontacted people's territory, and that's to protect them from us, protect them from outsiders. Um, reason being, as we spoke about, is that uh, disease is coming in from the outside, and at this point, anything so much as a cold or a flu could really negatively impact um, these uncontacted peoples. But they have been... Uh, I'm going to say some um, conflict between contacted and uncontacted. Um, but from everything that I have been told when I'm there, um, the contacted peoples really feel it's their responsibility to protect the uncontacted yeah. because they know what can happen. And do they speak different languages? They do. I mean, the uncontacted, we don't, we don't quite know. Uh, we can only surmise, except for the one that's most recent contact, which are the Karubo. Um, there's about uh, half of the Karubo tribe have, have remained isolated. The other half have, have uh, come into contact with um, other tribes and government workers that, that are there uh, monitoring the land. Um, the Marubo, Matisse, Kanamari, Kulina, Mayaruna, um, uh, they all speak different languages, but some of the same roots. So they can understand, a few of them can understand uh, their, their languages within each other. And then Portuguese, for those who um, have learned it, is their second language. Now, at that uh, conference that you mentioned, uh, 2007, you met a man named Beto. Uh, he's a member of the Marubo tribe. Um, did he ask you to make this film to help him tell his people's story? He did. He did. So in 2007 was that conference. Um, and when I learned about the high rates of hepatitis and the government was defunding the healthcare system, um, I knew I wanted to do something more. And I wasn't quite sure what that was going to be. I thought in my very Western mind, I was going to help solve the hepatitis issue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we think we can put a bandaid on things and, you know, yeah, exactly. Come quick to the rescue with, with my cape. Um, but um, it's part of the learning process. Um, and Beto was, was my main contact on site um, to bring the team in in 2007. He wrote me an email in 2010. And the email was simple. He says, we want you to come back and tell our people's story. We're dying and we want the world to know we exist. Now the Javari Valley, uh, uh, is covered mostly by rainforests, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And most environmentalists say that the Brazilian rainforest is crucial to the health of the planet. It's been called the lungs of the planet. So mm -hmm. uh, how much of that rainforest uh, is in Javari, uh, the Javari Valley, and is it being raised? Well, if you look at the Amazon basin, um, so that includes uh, all of the countries that have um, part of the Amazon rainforest, the Amazon basin is not quite as big, but close to the continental United States. You can actually overlay the continental United States and the Amazon basin and goes almost from coast to coast. So it, it's quite a vast rainforest. Now, if you it's think- It's also called the Cerrado, right? There's an area called the Cerrado. Uh, I'm not familiar with the Cerrado. Oh. Okay. Um, Amazon's pretty big. I wish I was an expert in, in everything. I'm more of an expert in this one territory. Okay. Um, 
But the Amazon rainforest provides oxygen. So, I mean, the simple formula is if you like to breathe, you want the Amazon rainforest to stand because mm. it provides 20% of the global oxygen. Um, we can't live without without 20%. That's like taking five breaths, but not having that fifth one. Um, where there are indigenous people, there's less deforestation than even on conservation land. And so they are the natural guardians of an ecosystem on which we depend. For me, the formula is simple. You want to breathe, then you want the forest standing. In theory, who owns the land of the Javari Valley? In theory, it's the government, um, and they have demarcated the land for indigenous peoples that live there based on their uh, traditional territory. Um, but like in many places, and you know, this is no surprise as the uh, politics of the Brazilian government are quite simple, mm-hmm. um, it's expansion of agriculture and infrastructure. Um, there is, <laughs> I'm gonna say disregard for indigenous life. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's an uphill battle. There's constant threats, illegal and within uh, politics that are trying to change the protection to indigenous land and people. So is it designated as a protected area for the tribes who live there? Can others live there or only members of, of recognized tribes? Um, it's designated for the indigenous peoples, yes. Um, can other people live there? You would have to ask them. It's it's like it's like me asking, "Can I move into your house?" <laughs> mm-hmm. You would, you know, it's it's their land, um, it's their home, and so if they invite you in, you're welcome. Um, we were invited in as a production team. There are anthropologists that go there. It's always with their permission um, because they have the right to tell you to leave. Does the uh, Brazilian government provide support for the tribes living there? There is, yeah, there's two organizations that are governmental organizations. Um, One is FUNAI, which is responsible for um, demarcating and um, uh, the governance of the land. Um, Mm. And then there is CISAI, which is responsible for indigenous health. Um, The the people who are working on the ground for both FUNAI and CISAI are are dedicated individuals who are really trying to do their job um, to protect the health and well-being of indigenous peoples. But they don't have all of the means necessary to do so. Does each village have a local government or a tribal council? Do they govern themselves or uh, does the Brazilian government kind of oversee the whole thing? Each um, each tribe has a chief. Um, so there's a bit of a hierarchy there um, within each village. So um, you can have a tribe that has two villages and a tribe that has 15 villages. It depends on their population size. Um, and each of the villages functions independently. Yet as a culture, um, they also gather and um, come to decisions together. It doesn't mean that they're always going to agree on what, each, uh, what the other village should do or if they are in harmony. Um, but you know, the Matisse tribe have their ways, the Marubo have their ways, the Kanamari have theirs. Do the, uh, the tribes that have more contact with the outsiders have other things like electricity, running water, sewage systems? health services, schools? Well, there's no sewage system. There's no, I mean, the running water is the river. Um, Mm. And we did like them as we got our water right out of the river system. We would treat it uh, with UV light. Um, But for now, the river systems are clean until um, potential oil companies are wanting to come in to uh, explore for oil. Mm. Um, there's no electricity except for an occasional generator, which is run by diesel fuel. So it's very scarce. Um, some of the villages, one or two per river, again, 
85,000 square kilometers, um, have a clinic. And so if there are any um, kind of needs or emergencies, the, those would be the places they would go to. But because there's no refrigeration, there's no vaccination for things like hepatitis. So the medications they have are very basic. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large is Céline Cousteau. Uh, and she has made a film called Tribes on the Edge. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, does the uh, Javari have a lot of natural resources? Yes, um, the Javari has actually been declared irreplaceable in terms of its biodiversity by the IUCN. The IUCN is the International Union of Conservation for Nature. Um, and one of the things that we're hoping to do is, is really create an encyclopedia of that biodiversity to show um, how important this place is and what the threats to that biodiversity are. Um, and also to demonstrate that the indigenous people are protecting that biodiversity. And that includes gold, minerals, rubber, timber, fish, oils. For, I, oh. I'm going to say, unfortunately, all of the above. Are um, the uh, are the tribes engaged in exploiting those resources, or is it all being done by outsiders? It's all being done illegally by outsiders. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. The, with, the to some degree, uh, with the with the encouragement of of the Brazilian government. Well, it's been going on for a lot longer than this government. Um, I mean, these, so here's where I have to um, perhaps give a bit more detail on, on my thoughts on this. The, the illegal hunting and fishing that's happening on indig indigenous land, most, most of it's not going to be exported. Um, that I know of, there's no export of exotic species, for example, not from the Javari. Um, and so what you're getting is you're getting local populations who know that this land is um, protected and therefore there's a lot of wildlife, there are uh, river turtles, there's um, a fish to catch. And so they'll um, come in and they'll sell to local markets. That doesn't go very far. For every person you may arrest, there's going to be 10 right behind him. That's the difficult part. And they're hard to find because this river and these rivers and this territory is vast. The illegal gold mining are small operations on these floating, you know, uh, rusty um, boats um, that are basically dredging. And what that creates, so there's a lot of issues there. One is there's potential conflicts with the indigenous people. Two, there's the pollution of the river because they use mercury to separate the, oh. the gold, um, to amalgamate, sorry, the gold. Hmm. Um, and they're dredging the river, so they're destroying the ecosystem. So the, the threats there are multiple on that front. Um, the, the deforestation is, is happening more to the south and a bit towards the Peruvian border. Um, so the Javari shares the border with Peru on its western front. And what happens is if any trees get cut, they get tossed into the river. And as they float down the river, because of the way the river moves, they float onto the Peruvian side and get picked up legally. So here is where the system of, uh, of uh, I guess, illegal trade is quite crafty, is that once it's in the river, it doesn't belong to anyone. But because of the flow of the river, it ends up on the Peruvian side. And oh, here we have a log. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg on the well, story. So it's, it's really complex. Do the, in, do the indigenous people spill over into Peru? Does Peru have similar policies to Brazil? 
Peru's policies are quite different um, than Brazil, and it depends on the on the area. Um, the the border that's shared with Peru has similar indigenous populations on the Peruvian side of the river, um, and so there's a lot of crossing over back and forth of indigenous people because for them doesn't matter that it's Peru or Brazil, it's the other side of the river. Um, and on that side of the river in particular, there's not a lot of protection. How long did you spend making this film in the Javari Valley? <laughs> and did you have to get special government a permit to film there? Um, so we spent three years. Uh, I started filming in 2013. I went back 2014, 2015. I spent just as many years in post-production. It's a completely independent film. Uh, the indigenous people asked me for help to tell the story, so they trusted me. And I didn't want to sell the story mm. before I finished editing it um, because I didn't want it to be motivated by um, any kind of distribution or third party. Um, so it's uh, just come out for the public, um, as you mentioned earlier, on February 2nd on streaming, such mm -hmm. as um, iTunes, Amazon, and other streaming channels. Um, yes, we have to have permits. The first permit is, is, comes from the indigenous people, and that is their invitation and a formal letter of invitation allowing us to come onto indigenous land. Uh, the second permit comes from the government, allowing us to go on indigenous land. And then a third permit with a Brazilian production company as a partner. Now, so obviously making a film like this would seem to involve very complicated logistics uh, and, <laughs> yes. and a lot of planning. Did your experiences with your father and grandfather help you with that aspect of the film? A hundred percent, without a doubt. Um, being able to understand the logistics of um, an expedition expedition such as this um, is really important because you're not only planning your your flights and your boat and and you know the comings and goings of your team and the equipment and the permits, but you have to make sure everybody's going to be safe. Um, you know, if, if you're filming in a city, you're, you have your cars and your hotels. Well, we have our boat, which is our lifeline in and out. We have to make sure we have enough food and water. We have to make sure that we have the right medication. We have to make sure that we have an evacuation plan. Um, and we have to make sure that we stay safe because it's, again, foreign culture and indigenous land. And, you know, we were at one point going through uncontacted uh, indigenous territory. We had strict rules, um, no filming when we go through that land, no stopping on the shores. Uh, if we run out of fuel, you paddle. If they come mm -hmm. to contact you, you, you don't stop and you don't film. Um, and, and you say my, paddle. You say paddle. Yeah. There are no roads, are there? Oh, no. <laughs> so it's no either roads. you fly into the nearest town and then you travel by riverboat. Yeah, so the way we do it is you fly into Manaus, spend the night, fly to the tri-border area, Colombia, Brazil, Peru, um, and then taxi boat across the river, take a car for 20 minutes. There's no other road. It's a 20-minute road. Arrive to the border town um, in Javari, and then you hire a boat and uh, a boat driver and a second, um, and you, yeah, you do all yeah. of your equipment preparation there, and then you're off, and it's... You know, we had a 200 horsepower boat. Um, it's kind of an open air sort of <laughs> open air boat. We take about 15 hours to get to the to the first village. Um, if we were to go further away with that boat, it would take us maybe three to five days. But as we see in the film, uh, it isn't simple to travel around by boat. You, you ran out of fuel at times. You yes. were plagued by <laughs> bugs. A member yes. of your crew was bitten by a poisonous snake. Yes, indeed. You, were you prepared um, for all of that? 
Oh, I don't know if anybody can be fully prepared. Um, I, I have a, a switch somewhere in my brain that I, I don't panic. Um, when something happens like that, I go immediately into solution mode. Um, and, and sometimes I surprise myself in hindsight, going back and going, wow, how did I stay so calm? Um, because you know what, I've learned being in the jungle and I've learned with indigenous people to, to worry and to stress and to try to hurry is actually a waste of time. Um, I was told over and over again, hurrying in the jungle is just wasting time. So you may as well take a deep breath and, and mm. assess the situation um, and prioritize. How were you received in the villages? Were people welcoming or were they suspicious? We never went anywhere. We weren't invited. Um, so that already gave us, you know, the open door. Um, but again, each village has a different personality. And so it's just like going to your different friends' houses. They have different ways of making dinner. And, and in some places you take your shoes off, in some places you don't. So each village we walked into was an adaptation. Um, I would typically walk in first with the translator and leave my crew on the boat. Um, and then once I got the chief's okay to, for everybody to, um, to come into the village, then we would bring everybody and all of our gear. Um, we would let them tell us where we're sleeping. If we're, we always had tents and hammocks, but sometimes they would um, give us a space to sleep in maybe their schoolhouse or one of the homes. Um, and then each one had a different way of greeting us. The, the, one of the beautiful ones was in the village of Boa Vista, which is a Marubo village. Before we could even take our backpacks off, the women grabbed all of us, my entire crew. We had our you know, gear and, and things on our bodies. And they started running around the village with us, weaving us in and out of the huts and the homes and chanting. Um, and so you, you're kind of taken by surprise, but you just go with the flow. Um, in another village, we were met with machetes because they changed their mind because somebody else, nobody from our team and nothing we did, made them upset. And so they decided because somebody else made them upset, we weren't allowed to come into the village. And, and again, you know, you, you come in with respect and an understanding that this is their home and they are 100% allowed to change their minds. Um, and they said, no, you cannot stay. I said, okay, well, let's go plan B. Let's get back on the boat and figure out where we sleep. Now, how permanent are these villages? Uh, throughout most of history, haven't these people been nomadic? Most of them have been nomadic, yes. Um, that life has, has changed drastically since the arrival of the outsiders, the white man, as they call all of us. Um, you know, what, what had happened when diseases were first brought in by outsiders is that the indigenous people then became dependent on outside help for those diseases, outside medication. And so they ended up moving to the more easily accessible rivers, the bigger rivers, where boats could actually come to them. And since that time, which is now mm, 40 to 70 years, they have remained mostly on these more accessible rivers. Um, <clears throat> because that's it. they also filming. fish, because they, they live off of, yes. of fish, they forage for food. Uh, but they, they don't grow food, crops. They live off of fish. Um, they depend on the water for, for drinking, bathing, washing food, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's the only road, right? There's no roads there. So um, the easiest way of travel is on the water. So living by the water is, is typically um, the best thing mm. to do, yeah. And you show them harvesting manioc, which is also called mm. cassava or yuca. Is mm. that the main staple of their diet? It is. Um, so um, hunting um, any animals um, that they are able to to hunt. And again, their diets are different from one um, 
one people's to another. Um, manioc is an every meal occurrence, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, they harvest bananas. They've planted uh, pineapple, papaya. Um, I've seen them now raising chickens, um, both for eggs and the chickens themselves. Um, and I, the rest comes from the rainforest. But as the, as the, as the tribes have become um, more in contact with the outside world, they will leave their territory and they will go into the border town and they may buy um, things like rice and bread. Um, so that comes back into to the territory. Um, and there's a real duality. They still live very much traditionally and very much in their culture and, and the way they always have in their homes. And yet the men wear shorts and the women wear skirts and a bra. Um, and every now and then you'll hear in the evening, the generator uh, start up and there's one light bulb in the chief's house. Um, in one village, I heard house music as soon as the generator went on. So there's, you know, it's a real mix of culture and you have to realize they're uh, they're in transition. Um, there are things they enjoy from the outside world. And then there's also a man in the film who says, I see, I see the white person's world on television. It's nice, but our world here in the rainforest is better. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest today is Celine Cousteau. Uh, she has made a film called Tribes on the Edge, which uh, is available through many streaming services, and we will uh, go through the list again a little later. Uh, Celine, uh, these people practice body painting, weave headdresses, uh, some have unusual facial piercings. Are they all part of their spiritual practice, and how far back does that go? Because uh, these were these were people who came from Siberia. Well, how many thousands of years ago? Um, the, the history of human migration, I think, is is beyond my expertise. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, they do uh, body paint, body tattoo, body piercing, um, and then there are also decorations uh, such as bracelets, um, necklaces for the men and for the women. For the men, it's it's kind of a cross in front of the chest. Um, they also wear um, ankle bracelets and then right under the knee, depending on the different tribes. Um, it is part of their ritual. It's part of their decoration. I think that we, you know, we see it in our, um, in our Western world and it looks like makeup um, mm -hmm. and it looks like earrings and necklaces. It also still looks like tattoos. Um, so I see the parallels between us and them through these rituals um, of adorning oneself for um, ceremony. Our ceremonies are different. Sometimes well, not these days, but our ceremonies used to be going out and having, you know, a party or having fun, going dancing with our friends. Um, and uh, and their ceremonies are are different, but they are still rooted in the same idea of ritual. Um, again, and what are their religious beliefs? Does the Catholic Church or any other organized religion have a, have Catholic, a presence there? Um, that's, that's a controversial one. The Catholic Church has come in and influenced quite a few of, um, of the villages there, some more than others. Um, some of them now believe in God, which wasn't the case before. Um, from what I Did understand, they believe in gods? 
in the past? They believe in spirits. Yeah, spirits. they believe in spirits. Um, they have, uh, you know, again, the this idea of life and death is quite different for them. When the when somebody from their village dies, they no longer pronounce their name, at least in the Marubo tribe. Um, once they bury their body, they don't go back to visit uh, the dead because the dead are gone. It was just the body that they buried. Um, now that uh, missionaries have come into the land and influenced some of the tribes, um, God has come into the circle, um, and that has changed a little bit of their behaviors and their beliefs. So they do they do speak of religion. You show a, a shaman snorting a mixture of tobacco and other plants called rapé. Is, is that part of a religious ceremony? They, they use it, the um, hunters use it um, for uh, better, I'm going to say sight, and it's not just about the visual sight, but it's about being more acute um, to the surroundings. It kind of hones in uh, the senses to the surroundings. Um, they uh, offered it to my entire tribe, <laughs> my production team, and we all did. All it did was kind of create uh, teary eyes and, and uh, kind of wasabi sinuses, but it's supposed to kind of alert um, the mind. It really is basically like tobacco. Um, they do, uh, the Kanamari tribe are known for using ayahuasca as a way to communicate with the spirits. Um, the other tribes I have seen, the Marubo specifically, will use a uh, one element version of ayahuasca. So it's not the full, uh, the full formula. Um, but yeah. So it, it makes different. them high in effect, doesn't it? Well, so, I mean, and, and this is where it, we, we're kind of walking that fine line of understanding plant medicine. Um, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but plant medicine in the traditional sense is a way of um, accessing another dimension of your consciousness and being able to understand the world mm -hmm. in a different way. What they see is um, they see things more clearly. So, for example, if they're going to take hape, again, it's basically just crushed up tobacco. Um, it is to go on the hunt and be, be more precise in their ability to find um, and catch the animals. Um, ayahuasca is known to be able to um, communicate on a different level with the universe, with energies, with nature. Um, and I believe that they see another dimension of connectivity with the natural worlds that we don't see um, in our living state, except through potential um, understanding through mindfulness, uh, through meditation, um, biodynamic neurofeedback is another way as well to really understand how the brain works in deeper levels. Now you mentioned that uh, these uh, people have been hit by malaria and hepatitis, obviously brought in by outsiders. Uh, are those two diseases so dangerous to the people of the Divari because uh, they haven't developed uh, a, a natural immunity yet? More than that, it's the recurrence of multiple rounds. So if, you know, my parents have both had malaria because of their, because of their travels and and they're doing okay, but the liver takes a hit. So if you have one round of malaria, depending on how, what your immune system is like, you, you, you could be totally fine. The issue is, is that you have people who have had two, three, four, ten times malaria, which keeps hitting the same organs. And then on top of that, you get hepatitis A, B, and then Delta, um, and your body starts to shut down. And so hepatitis by itself, depending on the form, and a doctor will be able to give you more precise um, uh, 
testament to what it does, but it will shut your body down. Um, I've been told stories in the Javari of hemorrhagic hepatitis where they have seen people basically um, empty out the blood from their body because of hepatitis. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was trying to find a a more um, subtle way of saying it, but there isn't. Um, And it deeply affects the the whole um, energy of the village. If they see, and this has happened, they saw two, three of their elders die within a week. They think their future is very bleak because their elders are are really precious and important um, as are any humans. Um, so it's an accumulation of these diseases. And, and in, the film, in the film, you say that the tribes of the Javari don't want to die. Are they in danger of becoming extinct? Do they feel uh, endangered in that way? And have some tribes in the Javari already died out that we know? Um, that we know, I have not been told. Hmm. Um, are they afraid of going extinct? I had somebody look me in the eye and say, I don't want my people going extinct. And um, I've had Beto tell me, we have to accept that my generation will die away. We are fighting to save the next generation. Um, And it's not, again, it's not just from malaria. It's not just from hepatitis. It won't be just from COVID. It will be for an accumulation of all of that and all of the illegal activities and all of the threats to their land um, and the changing laws that protect their land rights. Um, well, they are health services available? Does it, are there government-run clinics? Are there doctors in the villages? There are uh, there are one or two clinics on each of the three main rivers, um, where there are healthcare workers who are absolutely amazing, dedicated people, um, and they stay for three months at a time, and then they swap out with somebody else. So they they leave everything behind to stay there for. Uh, for that amount of time. Um, they are government healthcare workers, but again, as I said earlier, they don't have all of the medicine that they need. They don't have refrigeration for hepatitis vaccinations. And because of how vast the land is, any kind of delivery of vaccination is close to very, very complicated. We are seeing it now. I mean, look what's happening with our own vaccinations for COVID. And we live in countries where of the highest technology with the refrigeration needed and people are still waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, now put that whole system into, into the jungle where access is extraordinarily complicated. Um, and some of the drugs require refrigeration and they don't have refrigeration. Correct. <clears throat> correct. Hepatitis vaccinations require refrigeration. Yeah. Now, uh, around 400 tribes have been estimated to be living in the Amazon today, which is about 0.6% of the total Brazilian population. And I'm assuming that uh, that's a reason why they are not a high priority for the Brazilian government. Yeah, it's sad to say, but um, uh, the government has said before it's too much land for too few people. But that's a very narrow-minded way of looking at it. The too few people protect land on which we all depend, as I was saying earlier, for 20% of the global oxygen. Those those, uh, few people are doing all of us a lifeline service. Um, and it's not about too few people. It is their land. We can't just go thinking that we should all live on a quarter of an acre and that should, you know, let's, let's quadrant off the entire planet that way. It doesn't work that way. 
It doesn't function. Um, there needs to be, and it's not just the Amazon, it's the Congo, it's Papua New Guinea. Um, th there are these critical ecosystems that need to be protected in order for the entire planet's um, climate system to be in balance. That's what's at stake. You end the film with a shocking campaign promise from Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro. He said, if I become president, there will no longer be a centimeter of indigenous land in Brazil. And I, I guess that didn't deter the majority of Brazilians from voting for him. Mm. Has he begun to make good on that promise since he um, took office in 2019? Under his, uh, under his government, um, the protection of indigenous land has decreased. The previous governments weren't necessarily doing an amazing job as far as indigenous people and the environment were concerned, um, but there have been increased threats to land. And that's because those who are going onto indigenous land illegally have seen that the government is basically giving them open license to go and exploit even illegally, and that the government isn't supporting the on-the-ground workers who are there to protect the land. They're not indigenous people. These are Brazilians who have taken a job with the Brazilian government to protect indigenous people, and they themselves are at risk because uh, because the government doesn't respect their work. And so you have you know, indigenous and non-indigenous alike who are putting their lives on the line to protect these ecosystems. What about the courts? Hmm. <laughs> uh, are, are the are uh, the courts protecting these people, or is it are they going along with uh, Bolsonaro? Um. I, I don't know the court system in Brazil very well. Um, what I have seen is that there has been um, a lot of license given to increased. Um, decreased protection, increased opening of indigenous land. Um, just recently, there was a, a an article, and I, I, I can't cite it perfectly for you, but there was an article um, that stated that there was a new member of Congress um, that was friendly to opening up indigenous land to mining, and he was shaking hands with the president of Brazil. Are these people, uh, do they have access to schools? Do they want to go to schools? They, um, in some of the villages that I have been to, I've seen the small schools, primary education, unfortunately, in Portuguese, because it's a government run education. So uh, they send in these amazing teachers who go and live with the tribes, um, who are teaching as best as they can, but not in the native language. So uh, some people, I assume, who decide that they want to have a higher education have to leave. Correct. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the challenge. It's not that it's an issue. It's just a challenge is that when they leave the indigenous uh, territory, either because they think um, uh, they're going to find a better life or they want to work or they want to see the outside world or they want an education, um, there's not a huge support system for them in, in this outside world. Um, they are, in a lot of cases, seen as less important or, or um, minorities um, and excluded from a lot of... Um, a lot of support, um, cast, a, cast aside. The, uh, the village that's at the border of indigenous land is quite a rough place to be, and that's the first place they land. Um, I was there in November 2019 to show my film to the indigenous representatives that, um, that could attend. There were 150. Um, and we also did um, uh, screenings and presentations to the local schools. These local schools live within a boat ride 
from the edge of the land. There are indigenous people living in the same village as them, and they have no idea, no idea about the existence of these indigenous peoples, what they do, how they live, why they're important, or anything about their land. Um, so education goes both ways. Indigenous people have a lot to teach us, and um, they are strong. They have amazing voices. They have a real understanding of what it's like to live in harmony with nature, and they have a lot to teach us. Um, it, we would fare well to listen more closely. Now, uh, there are non-health issues that threaten the tribes. You've been hinting at them. For example, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the uh, illegal efforts to clear land for agriculture, mining, and drilling for oil. Uh, no efforts made to stop those activities? Um, I, I think there are efforts made by grassroots organizations, by local movements, by indigenous movements. Um, it's, it's very difficult. You know, it's the typical David and Goliath story. And um, sometimes that sometimes there's a winner mm -hmm. on the on the on the good guy side. Um, but it is very much an uphill battle. I believe in prevention. I think we have to fix the issues. If you think of a simple one like single-use plastics, yes, of course, we have to clean up all the single-use plastics in the ocean, but we have to stop it from going in. It's the same thing with exploiting indigenous land. We have to stop it from happening before it does. Um, and that's what we're hoping to do with the Javari is that it's preventative. These are illegal activities. We're not going up against somebody who has a permit. We're going up against people who are going on the land illegally. There should be arrests made. There should be a legal system that takes care of that. Um, but I find that there's more of a blind eye than anything. Let's well, not uh, let's not just accuse the corporations, though. And this is something that I feel that's really important for us to understand. We are all connected to what happens in the Javari. We're all connected to what happens in the Amazon. We're connected to what happens in the oceans because we depend on it for our natural resources, whether it's for our food or, or other products, because we breathe, because we eat. Um, everything we use comes from somewhere. And behind that, there are human beings. And behind that, there's an ecosystem. And yes, behind that, there's a corporation. But we are also in the power to make positive decisions by supporting um, grassroots organizations, by refusing certain products, by educating ourselves and the people around us. We have that ability. And that's the positive impact we can make. Going back to that campaign promise of Bolsonaro, uh, is the government encouraging deforestation? Mm, they're encouraging um, agricultural exploitation, um, uh, which includes uh, planting agriculture. So whether it's palm or soy or other products, as well as cattle ranching. Um, and there is also a system whereby if the forest burns, well, you can exploit it because it's no longer standing. So as we have seen in past years, and I know that it made the news, um, as we've seen in past years, there's a lot of the rainforest that's been burned. Those are intentionally set fires. Well, once the rainforest is gone, there's a law that says that you can exploit it. And uh, as you point out, because this is an isolated area, uh, it, it's kind of hard to stop some of those activities. Yes. Um, now, you, you've gone back. How, how have things changed in the Javari since you made the film? Um, well, when I went back in 2019, um, I was on the outside of the Javari territory, um, and things are still, I'm going to say, unfortunately, status quo. 
in that the illegal activities are still happening. The government is defunding people on the ground who are supposed to be protecting the indigenous peoples. Um, but there is there is a nationwide uprising and movement of strong indigenous leaders. Um, Beto Marubo is one of them. Um, his brother, Eliesio, uh, both of them left the indigenous territory when they were 16 and 17. Um, on request, on order, I will say, of their father, who was the chief of their village, who said, go to the outside world and learn about the white man's ways, um, because it will serve us later. And no. this was quite a, a long time ago. This was 30 years ago. And Beto is working on the political front, and he's a very active spokesperson. Eliesio is a lawyer who is defending indigenous rights. Now, Brazil imported slaves from Africa, uh, so it has a long history of, uh, of uh, a long racist history. Does this just does this just uh, join? Is this just part of the the, the racism of uh, of the past, or uh, have things been changing? Were they even aware of these people when they first started settling Brazil, the, the Portuguese? Well, when they, yeah, when they first arrived into Brazil, what happened is a lot of the indigenous people fleed the coastline and, and went further inland to try to hide and protect themselves. Um, indigenous people were killed and enslaved um, to work for uh, the Europeans who came in to exploit the land. Um, so there is a long history of that in, in all of the Americas and in a lot of other continents around the world, as we know very well. Um, unfortunately. And there is racism towards indigenous peoples in Brazil. Um, and, and that is, you know, a longstanding uh, thought that they are worth less than other humans. Um, because again, there's been this, uh, this policy of thinking there's too much land for too few people. Um, mm. But it was their home long it was before anybody else's, before the, before the Europeans arrived. So we treaded on their land. Um, this is their home. Now, you kind of hinted at this before, but what can outsiders do to help these tribes preserve their way of life? Um, I, I would say first and foremost, and this I'll give you the intangible first, because it's sort of the bigger picture idea, is for all of us to be more, um, one, become more educated, more knowledgeable about indigenous peoples, indigenous rights, indigenous history, um, shifting our consciousness of what it means to be human on this planet. Um, connecting to yourself, connecting to others, connecting to nature, understanding where your food comes from and looking at those labels. Um, I'll take one easy one. I tell kids this all the time just because it's an easy one. Palm oil. Palm oil just makes things creamy. You don't actually need it. Um, small example, I don't mean to harp on this one, poor Nutella, but Nutella has palm oil in it. There are alternatives um, to that kind of product that don't have palm oil in it. Understand that the, the oil, the hardwood, um, the gold comes from somewhere. If you have the ability to have information about where it comes from, be knowledgeable. If you don't, you can still do a lot of things. Support grassroots organizations, support NGOs, support indigenous organizations. You don't have to become an environmental and humanitarian defender waking up in the morning with your superwoman cape. Um, you have to support and become an indigenous ally, become a humanitarian, become an environmental ally and help those people who are doing it or offer your expertise. If you are good at grant writing, if you are an accountant, um, if you are good at PR and marketing, there are organizations and movements that could really use that expertise. 
I saw a film recently that dealt with the impact of, uh, of Native Americans and our indigenous people here in the United States on uh, on how we prepare food and the foods that we eat. I suspect that there's a lot that we could learn from these people as well. Is there is that exchange even possible? I think it is possible, and I think now more than ever, there's this um, there's this growing communication and openness. Um, but I, we have to present ourselves with honest vulnerability. And, and this is hard to do because we put our ego out there, right? We have to open ourselves up to saying, I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. I, I came to this understanding for myself, um, and it may sound obvious at this point in the conversation, but I, I identify as an indigenous ally. It doesn't mean I know everything and it doesn't mean it comes easy either because when I'm seen walking in a white European woman speaking on behalf of indigenous people in the Brazilian Amazon, people look at me and go, well, who are you to speak for them? And I say, I'm not speaking for them. I'm speaking on behalf of them and I'm trying to create a bridge and, and of understanding and of listening. If you were to listen to them the way you listen to me, you may understand, but Sometimes it's easier to be that bridge and then and then carry people over and say, this is what we can do. On, Shalene, um, go ahead. Yes. I was going I was to just say, say yeah, finish <laughs> up. We're, we're about ending this. So uh, finish up what you're saying. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to, you know, I, I, um, I always like to open up to, to that moment of, you know, when things are difficult, you, you double down and you take your courage in both your hands and you just put it out into the world. Um, it, it was Indigenous Peoples March um, in Washington, D.C. There were four hours of presentations, um, uh, all Indigenous people for four hours and me. And I had to stand there and say, I stand here as an Indigenous ally speaking on behalf of the Indigenous people of the Valle de Javari who cannot be here themselves. So please let me share their story. And That's Celine Cosseau, she is, she shared their story in a film called Tribes on the Edge, now available on demand from iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Hulu, and other platforms. And it's been a great pleasure having you on our show. I'm sorry, we there's a lot more to talk about. I'm sorry we can't get to it. But there's been plenty. I really appreciate the the attention and the thoughtfulness of this um, of this conversation. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn for preparing today's interview and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. You can email me your comments about any of our shows at leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a minute to ask you for your support for this station. We're hoping that all of our listeners who have the means to do so will step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique, in-depth, one-hour interviews we bring you on this program coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Because, you know, WBAI relies 100% on listener support. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, or even if you've just discovered us, why not do your part by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to 
WBAI.org to help keep this show and this historic station on the air. Uh, and uh, please uh, tell the uh, the people uh, that uh, you're doing it in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. Everyone who has stepped up to support the station in the name of our show, thank you. We're off for the next few days, but I hope you'll join us again on Wednesday when industrial hygienist and regular contributor to our program, Monona Russell, will update us with the positives and the negatives of the latest efforts to prevent the spread of COVID-19. We'll see you then.